This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Tonight we'll be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. We're going to actually read through and study, uh, Lord willing, chapter, through chapter 3, verse 6, which really goes together. It's kind of a unit. Uh, chapter 2, verse 12. Hear the word of God. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest, because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? We are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Let us pray. Our Father, we turn to your word this evening with thanksgiving and praise to you for this portion of your word. Thank you for the human servant, your Apostle Paul, who wrote these words, and for the church to whom you wrote and that existed in a faraway place so long ago, and yet, Lord, were uh, very similar to us in many ways as a congregation of your people. And Father, we pray that your word would be food for our souls tonight, encouragement for our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In this letter, as we've uh, been looking at it, we've seen how Paul is writing uh, to to the church in Corinth, uh, dealing with some very specific matters, not the least of which is his relationship with this church and the uh, credibility that he has with this church. It's almost beyond belief to us to think that Paul would have a credibility problem with any church, uh, and yet uh, we probably see him in a very different light than the Christians in Corinth saw him 
for us, Paul is, is uh, uh, not quite, but almost maybe the fourth person of the, not a trinity, but a quadernity. Uh, so elevated is our opinion of him, even as we acknowledge that he was human. He was uh, a mere fallen but redeemed sinner, just like we are. But the Corinthians really uh, saw that to a greater degree. They knew him as a flesh and blood man. They knew what he looked like. They knew what he sounded like. Uh, not, uh, not only that, but they had the uh, problem of those who were opposed to uh, Paul, opposed to his ministry, actively seeking to undermine his credibility. And so Paul is caught in the difficult position of having to assert his position, his God-given call and authority, having to try to establish or re-establish credibility with this church, all the while not sounding like he protests too much, and his opponents could say, see, he, he knows he has to defend himself, he's, he knows he's an imposter, and uh, so he's trying to win you over. It's in some ways a... a lose-lose situation for him, except for the fact that Paul knew the reality of his call, and he knew that ultimately what they thought of him was irrelevant. It was the truth of God. It was the Spirit of God at work in them that was the main thing, and the very fact that Paul acknowledged that, that he was more concerned about them than he was himself, itself established his credibility as a true servant of God. Well, in the passage before us, Paul, uh, last time we saw, had been addressing the situation of a case of church discipline. Well, now he moves on to talk about some other things with them. And as he does so, he hints somewhat at his own ministry. We see something of his own heart for them, something of his own approach to this church in Corinth, the church which no doubt gave him many sleepless nights in consternation of soul, and yet was the object of great affection uh, on his part, because this was a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. These were people for whom Christ had died. Uh, specifically, in the, in the passage that we've read this evening, uh, from Paul's ministry, and we could say really from any, for any true ministry, any God-given, uh, God-established opportunity for ministry, there are several key elements that are here. This is true whether we're talking about the ministry of an apostle, uh, whom there are no more, uh, of a pastor of a church or an elder, uh, of a Sunday school teacher or a friend trying to minister to another. Obviously, it might apply a little bit differently in each case, but nevertheless, these things are, these things are true. These things are real uh, in, in any case where one is trying to minister in the name of Christ to another. And the first one is a heart for people. A heart for people, a, a concern for the well-being, physical, spiritual well-being, especially the spiritual well-being of others. Look at verses 12 through 13. Paul says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest, because I could not find my brother Titus there, so I took leave of them, and went on to Macedonia. Now, we have the account of this in Acts chapter 16, verse 8. This is describing Paul's second missionary journey. Uh, Acts 16, 8 says, So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. 
And there's no reference made there of Titus in, in Luke's account. He simply says a vision appeared to Paul in the night. The, the man of Macedonia uh, was standing there urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And then uh, Paul also made a follow-up visit uh, the, the next spring, which is recorded in Acts chapter 20. Uh, verse 6 and following, we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days, and that's where he was preaching until midnight on a Sunday night service uh, when Eutychus went out the window. Uh, for some reason, was falling asleep during the Apostles' sermon. Uh, it's a long-standing tradition, apparently. Uh, so Troas, uh, Paul came through several times, but he mentions specifically here that he came to Troas, uh, even though a door was opened for him, then a window was opened for Eutychus later. Um, by the way, that, that's an expression Paul uses in more than one place. Uh, we find it here, find it in Colossians, uh, also in Acts. A door was opened, that passive, which some interpreters might call it the divine passive. It's God who opened the door, God who provided this opportunity. But that seems to be a favorite expression of Paul's. A door was opened for me, an opportunity for ministry. What is he going to say? My spirit is not at rest because I could not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia, of course, following this call that he we read about in Acts 16. But what does he mean Titus wasn't there? Was he, was he now afraid to minister there because Titus wasn't there? Why was he anxious? What was he worried about? Well, Titus was to meet him with news of the church in Corinth. And what Paul is saying to them, as he's, remember, trying to establish that he does love them, that he does care about them, was that when Titus wasn't there, he was anxious, he was not at rest, because he couldn't find Titus, and he was worried about the Corinthian church. He didn't have news of them. He didn't know what was going on with them. And so, hard as it can be, as it may seem to be to believe, Paul cared very deeply about this church. Uh, despite their problems, he referred to them as a church of Christ. He referred to them as uh, those whom he loved dearly. Uh, and we see here Paul's heart for them, his anxiety. And he refers to that in other places, his care for the various churches, not the least of which was Corinth. So obviously, any time we're seeking to minister to another person, there has to be a heart for people, a love for them, a regard for them, a God-given compassion for them uh, that can endure even opposition from them that can endure even difficulty, even the trying of one's patience, whatever the case might be, as we see here with Paul. And certainly that was a part of his ministry, uh, as much of an uh, intellect, uh, scholar, writer as Paul was. Paul had a very big heart, and he loved God's people wherever they were. There's a second thing, second key element that we find here in this passage uh, and, and a very strong one, familiar verses perhaps in 14 through 17, and that is an eternal perspective. Anytime we minister to someone else in the name of Christ, while what we do may well have temporal benefits, might help them out in here and now, we must never lose sight of the fact that it always has eternal implications. And we see this in verses 14 through 17. 14, by the way, marks the beginning of a digression. Um, there was a minister 
that I knew was now with the Lord. And when I knew him, he was getting on up in years. And he would sometimes preach. And he honestly had a tendency sometimes to, to ramble, to get off the point a bit. But even his ramblings were a great blessing to hear. Uh, well, Paul's digressions, we thank God for them because some of the most memorable passages we have in Paul's letters were when he followed a rabbit trail, when he got off point and uh, wrote about other things. And that's exactly what happens here, actually uh, begins this digression in, in verse 14 and really doesn't come back to the point to, uh, or to where he was at any rate till uh, chapter 7 verse 5 for even when we came into Macedonia our bodies had no rest so, so back to his journeys and his uh, the, the events happening in his life but up to chapter 7 verse 4 uh, a very personal section that we'll uh, spend some time going through looking at uh, but it begins here with, with doxology with praise with thanks thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumph procession In one sense, Paul doesn't want the Corinthians to think he was somehow crushed or defeated by his anxiety for them. Hence the the adversative, verse 14. But, even though he was restless, not at rest, because he couldn't find Titus, he took leave, went to Macedonia. Nevertheless, he gives thanks to God for what God is doing in him and through him. And that's what we see here. Now, the image that Paul gives here uh, is that of uh, the Roman victory parade where uh, a a conquering Roman general uh, entering Rome with his captives and all of the plunder and so forth, and the captives going along in their chains uh, were led in this triumphal procession. And uh, Paul likens his relationship to Christ and by implication our relationship to Christ in that way, we are captives of Christ. He has, uh, in the language of the shorter catechism, which we read this morning, Christ's office as a king to subdue us to himself. Uh, he has done that. He has overcome us and won us to himself, subdued us to himself. And that's what Paul is saying here. Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. The reference there to the burning of spices uh, as part of the celebration, as part of the parade, and this uh, sweet fragrance would fill the air, be part of the the festivities, the uh, triumphalism, uh, triumphal parade and uh, celebration going on. And so that association with uh, uh, the aroma of it was there, and Paul refers to that, but draws a theological lesson out of it and, and goes on to uh, explain those impl- implications uh, of life and death. Look at verses 15 and 16. We are the aroma of Christ. Notice, first of all, to God. First, and then to people among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. And so there's a twofold effect. God's word is always effective. Your ministry is always effective. The preaching of the word is always effective. The question is to what effect? For some people, the preaching of the word of God leads to life. Whether someone who is a believer, someone who at that moment becomes a believer, or even 
someone who is one of God's elect who has yet to become a believer, maybe very hostile, maybe indifferent, maybe interested, but not yet regenerate. But the Word of God is serving to move them toward that point of regeneration, repentance, and faith. On the other hand, when the Word of God is preached to someone who is, as Paul says, perishing, we would say someone who is reprobate, someone who is not elect, it serves only to harden. It serves only to heap up judgment, to make them all the more accountable, uh, to uh, aggravate, we might say, their condemnation. Um, that's a sobering thought. That any time we share the gospel with someone, any time we teach a Sunday school lesson, any time we preach a sermon, lead a Bible study, whatever it might be, the Word of God is doing its work either of saving or condemning. And so Paul is right to respond as he does. Who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient to be an instrument determining the eternal outcome of someone's life? Who is adequate to be the instrument that God uses either to bring someone to heaven or to send that person to hell? That's an that's a overwhelming, a staggering, and a weighty thing to contemplate. And he asks that question, and he comes back to it later, as we'll see, and answers it. But for now, uh, in verse 17, he says, For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. No one is sufficient for this, and anyone who has a due sense of the weightiness of what's going on would feel something of that lack of adequacy, that lack of sufficiency. But those, on the other hand, who are peddlers, who are, who are uh, mercenary in their approach to the gospel, who are using the gospel as a means to an end, such as Paul's opponents were, um, whatever that end might be, including winning a following for themselves or undermining Paul's ministry, uh, don't have a sense of that insufficiency. Uh, they're blind to it. They don't feel it. Paul says, we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. The term is pejorative. Uh, they're just out there making a buck off of it. And that's what he's saying. But look at how he describes his own ministry. As men of sincerity, there's a transparency, a reality there, uh, commissioned by God, actually called by God. These, these are not some who have sent themselves, but those whom God has called. Uh, as you read that, you think of um, uh, Jeremiah's day with the difficulty with false prophets. And who was a real prophet? Those who opposed Jeremiah. But Paul says we are commissioned by God. Uh, under God's scrutiny, in the sight of God, we speak. Uh, Paul was painfully aware that he did live quorum Deo, before the face of God, under the gaze of God, uh, and so we must be too. And he says we speak in Christ. Um, one of Paul's favorite expressions, to be in Christ, meaning that there is a real and spirit-accomplished union with the risen Lord Jesus Christ, between him and Jesus, or between you, the believer, and Jesus, so that we live out our lives, we minister, we serve in the church, we serve in the community, whatever it might be, in Christ, in that union and connection with Christ that we have. And so that's the second key element here, is the eternal perspective, to recognize that far more 
may be going on than you are aware of. When you teach a Sunday school lesson, uh, when you share the gospel with somebody, we honestly have no real way of knowing what, what is really happening, what God's purposes for that person might be, what fruit might come in, in much, much later years because of a conversation, because of a lesson you taught, because of a sermon that was preached, whatever it might be. Uh, we recognize that God's word, uh, as Isaiah said, never returns to him void. A tremendous burden, yes, but also a tremendous encouragement to know that God can work through us in ways that we may never have imagined to do things that we never would have thought of. So we need to have an eternal perspective. We need to have a heart for people. The third thing Paul mentions here is that we need to recognize that ministry needs to be validated by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We don't validate ourselves. Um, I remember a comment uh, Charles Spurgeon made of uh, those who were critical of him or critical of how he preached. And he he pointed to the souls converted under his ministry uh, as validation of his call. And he's right to do that because ultimately the validation is God's using us and the fruit of that work, um, which I would say is the difference between a spiritual gift and a natural ability. A spiritual gift is when God takes something you do, maybe a natural ability you have, and uses it to help build the kingdom of Christ. Uh, God is pleased to own that. He's pleased to use that. Someone may have tremendous ability And yet if God doesn't use that, if God doesn't build his kingdom through that or bless it to that end, you have to say, well, maybe that's not their spiritual gift even that God gave them for the building up of the church, even though it may be a tremendous and useful ability. But the validation of Christ, we should always be looking for that in our lives and in our ministry. And that's what Paul deals with here in the first three verses of chapter 3. He's mentioned that, you know, we're not peddlers, we're sincere, we're commissioned by God, in the face of God, uh, and in Christ. And then Paul immediately thinks, well, you know, how would they hear that? Well, his opponents would say, well, he's just commending himself again. He's just trying to get you to think that he's somebody. Paul says, are we commending ourselves again, or do we, as some do, do we need letters of recommendation to you or from you? Apparently a reference to... Uh, a practice of, of having uh, epistles commendatory, letters recommending someone or commending someone to another, uh, a letter of introduction, basically, which um, Paul was not opposed to. In fact, in Paul's ministry, he himself, in various letters, in 1 Corinthians, for example, speaks on Timothy's behalf. Second uh, Corinthians, this very letter we're studying, is in some ways uh, commending to the Corinthian believers Titus, and his companions with him. Uh, Romans 16, verse 1, he commends Phoebe to the church. Uh, Colossians, he writes to them, commending Barnabas to them. So Paul's not against letters commending a particular person, and in many ways that was necessary so that believers would know that this was a legitimate teacher, that this was someone that they could listen to, that they could trust, that this was not someone out just doing their own thing, but came recommended, uh, came with the endorsement of someone that they trusted. However, what Paul is saying here, uh, he goes on to explain in verse 2. Do we need to commend ourselves? Do we need letters to you? Do we need to ask for letters from you, as some apparently would do? 
Well, what does he say in verse 2? You yourselves are our letter of commendation. Paul says, no, we don't need a letter. Look at the validation. Look at what Christ has done. The very fact of this church, through Paul's ministry, the very fact that many of these people to whom he wrote became believers through Paul himself. That was his letter of commendation. Christ himself validated Paul's work among them by the fact that they themselves were there, that they had become believers. And he says in verse 3, You show you are letters from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. The Corinthians themselves. By the way, Paul makes no claim to be the author of these living letters. Christ really is. But it validates. It's Christ's letter of recommendation, basically. that They are his recommendation uh, of, of his ministry. And not on stone. In uh, the reference there to the law, and it's starting to transition into the next section, which Lord willing we'll look at next time, uh, the ministry of the, the, the law, ministry of the letter, versus ministry of the spirit, uh, but rather written on their hearts. And so, um, and kind of an echo there of Jeremiah 31, where God said he would write his law on their hearts. Uh, Ezekiel, I'll take away your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. That's Ezekiel 11, Ezekiel verse 30, uh, chapter 36. Um, but God's work on their hearts, not, not slavishly binding them now to an external uh, law, but the reality of spiritual life within them. That, Paul says, is our commendation. That's Christ's validation of my call and ministry, my commission as your apostle. And as we serve Christ in whatever capacity, we should pray for and long for and seek after the fruit of our ministry. Do you look for people to be converted by your witness, by your teaching? Uh, Do you look for your children's salvation as you teach them the truths of the faith and, and pray for their salvation? How could you be indifferent to such a thing? How could you be content... Uh, to go on and on, never seeing anybody respond to your teaching as a Sunday school teacher, uh, or for me and and my preaching, not to see the fruit of conversion, not to see the fruit of Christian growth. Uh, What kind of monstrous thing is that, that we would go on week after week, year after year, and never see anybody come to Christ, never see anybody grow in their faith, never see anybody uh, grow to maturity in the Lord, uh, repenting of sins, those kinds of things. We should seek the validation of Christ on our ministry, on our life together as a church. Uh, otherwise, we have to say, what are we doing wrong? How are we displeasing him? Because Christ is building his kingdom. Christ is interested in seeing the church grow, not just numerically, although that too, but also spiritually. And Paul points to them as validation on his ministry. What do we point to? What do we see as a result of our teaching, as a result of our witness, as a result of our relationships, our uh, child rearing, whatever it might be. Those are questions that we need to ask because we seek the approval, the, the validation of Christ through the fruit of our efforts. And then the last thing that Paul mentions here is heart for people, this eternal perspective, the importance of the validation of Christ by the fruit that is given. And then the last thing is confidence in God. Look at verses 4 through 6. Paul says, such is the confidence we have through Christ toward God. The confidence that they themselves are now a church, they're Christians, because of his ministry. But then he's quick to, in in a sense, backtrack a little bit. 
Look at what he says. He realizes the boldness of that statement, their confidence. Verse 5, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. You know, he quickly, he says, you, you know, this is our confidence. However, oh, by the way, not that we think we did this. Not that we think we're the ones who converted you. Not that we think we've got the power to make you into a godly church. Not that we are sufficient to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Verse 6, who has made us sufficient. It's the same word. I don't know why the ESV now translates it competent. That's the very same word in Greek. Uh, who has made us competent, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Paul earlier asked, who is sufficient for these things? Well, the answer is no one. However, God is our sufficiency. Um, Almost any true ministry, and I think certainly any Christ-glorifying ministry, will have a sense you will have a sense of helplessness, uh, a sense of complete inability. And that's a good thing. There should be a sense of scariness to it, recognizing that unless God works, nothing will happen. You will fail. Um, I, 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 I experienced something that, of this in my own life uh, in the whole, whole process of preaching, uh, you start out learning to preach, and you're just happy you didn't hyperventilate and pass out being up in front of people. And then you re- realize that you can preach and, and live to tell about it, get up in front of people and live to tell about it. You know that experience, you know how scary it can be to be in front of people. But you get used to that. And uh, then the, you, you want to do better, you know, and this is true in teaching also, teaching a lesson. And you're able to concentrate more on trying to develop a good lesson and trying to deliver it well and work on developing those skills, uh, hopefully, so that you will improve as a teacher or as a preacher. But then you hit the scariest stage of all, which is the recognition that it really doesn't matter how good the lesson is, how well it's put together, or how skillfully it's delivered. Unless God chooses to use it, you're wasting your time. You're wasting your life. And so what it does is drive us back to prayer, back to seeking God's grace, God's power. And that's what Paul is saying here. They are his confidence, but it's not that they're sufficient for it. Our sufficiency is, a, is from God who, who's made us sufficient, who's made us competent to, in Paul's case, be a, or in mine, be a minister of the new covenant, in his case an apostle, but for all of us, a Sunday school teacher of the new covenant, a member of the new covenant, telling someone else about God's grace in Christ, uh, empowered by the Spirit, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And that's really Paul's segue into the next section that, Lord willing, we'll look at next week, or in two weeks. But for now, we need to go back and just remember, uh, as Paul points to his ministry, he reminds them of his heart for them, that he really does love them, and he cares about them, not for what they can do for him, but because of who they are in Christ. He takes an eternal perspective, recognizing that even those situations where he may seem to have failed, God can use either for salvation or to glorify himself and heaping up further condemnation on those who are perishing. Uh, The recognition that all true ministry is validated, to some degree at least, by the fruit that Christ gives it. 
And then recognizing in all of that, that, are, that we can be confident in, in ministry and serving Christ in the church and the community in his name, whatever that we do, uh, because ultimately we're not relying on ourselves. We're not sufficient in ourselves. And the first step is to acknowledge that and to acknowledge that our sufficiency is, is ultimately only in God. It's ultimately only in Christ himself. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you uh, for this passage. We recognize that Paul, even when the tremendous gifts he had, was capable of doing absolutely zero unless you chose to work through him. And Father, we pray that as a church, as your people, for me as a minister, for those of us who serve as elders or deacons, as Sunday school teachers, as Bible study teachers, as parents raising our children, as witnesses to a friend, whatever the case might be, Uh, Father, we recognize that ultimately uh, our efforts are in vain unless you own them and are in them and are pleased to work through them. Father, we don't want a fruitless and ineffective ministry and church and body life together. We pray, Lord Jesus, that we would see your validation of our ministry as a church by the fruit that you give us, by changed lives, by the influence that we have uh, on those who are in our midst as well as those with whom we come in contact in the community. And all to the glory of Christ, Lord, we cannot do that, but we pray that you would do that through us, and we give you all the praise and all the glory, and we ask